Hello and welcome to another episode of Phenomena, the podcast where we talk about women that have been figures in Irish history, whether it's for the good, the bad, the sick or the ugly. This week my name is Sickly Shauna and I'm joined as always by Mumpsy Maria. And the reason we have taken to very sickly names this week is because I'm going to be talking about Typhoid Mary aka Mary Malone, who became a notorious figure in world history as a result of some unfortunate illness effects. Let's say illness effects. Words aren't my strong point today. That's okay. It's very topical that we talk about somebody with a with an infectious disease. And we'd just like to say as well before we get into the episode we are, of course, recording from quarantine, so we apologize if the sound quality isn't tip-top, but we're trying our best. Yes. <laughs> so, I'm going to try and call her Mary Malone, or Mary throughout the episode, rather than Typhoid Mary. Can I just say, I think the term Typhoid Mary is hilarious. Don't they don't call her that, but I just think it's very funny and I would just like to say that. It is, but the the issue I guess, which is why I'm gonna try and call her Mary Malone or just Mary rather than Typhoid Mary, is because she didn't have the greatest life and a lot of it can be put down to this moniker Typhoid Mary that was given to her. So like I grew up hearing the expression Typhoid Mary. And it like took on like a life of its own, almost like uh, Frankenstein's monster, where it completely dehumanized this woman, Mary. And like, it's funny and it's an expression that I use myself in day to day life, but the, the ramifications of it weren't good for her. So I want to humanize her for the purpose of this story so that we learn about who Mary Malone was as opposed to this massive pop culture reference that is Typhoid Mary. I had never heard of this before you mentioned it to me, which I think is really interesting because, as you said, it's a massive term in pop culture, but I had never heard of her. So I'm very interested to find out the story of Mary Malone. Yes, yeah, so Mary Malone was born in Cookstown, ironically, in Tyrone in September 1869. She emigrated to the USA when she was 14 and went to live with her auntie. So we don't know a huge amount about her childhood, but we do know at some stage after moving to America, she entered domestic servitude. And by 1897, she had a very good reputation as a cook for wealthy New Yorkers. Now, at this time, being a cook was one of the, the better jobs that you could have if you were going to work as a servant. You kind of got to lord over everybody else. And her signature dish was peach ice cream, which becomes relevant. <laughs> so between 1900 and 1907, she was employed as a cook for approximately seven or eight families. And in each household, somebody got ill with typhoid, but Mary slipped away to find new employment. So typhoid is a bacterial disease transmitted by the ingestion of contaminated water and food. So poo if you got poo on your fingers but even just like the tiniest tiniest trace amount of it and chronic asymptomatic carriers are a significant reservoir of infection 
So before antibiotics, the disease had a case fatality rate of about 12%. In the West, this was reduced to about 1% after the introduction of an antibiotic, which I can't pronounce, in 1948. But this obviously would have been at the turn of the century, so fatality rates were quite high. It was also a poor person's disease in a lot of cases, so it was quite unusual for wealthy people to get typhoid. Was it around before then, or was this the start of it? It's been around for a very long time. Significance in, in typhoid Mary isn't anything to do with the numbers of the cases. Significance with typhoid Mary is that she was the first identified asymptomatic carrier of typhoid in America which I will explain now in a minute, but it's so, so that's where it became the issue. The other thing with Mary was she was infecting rich people. So those are kind of the the two things. So in August, 1906, Mary worked in the rented summer house of a New York banker called Charles Henry Warren in Oyster Bay on Long Island. So there was 11 members in that household and six of them became ill with typhoid fever. The house was owned by a guy called George Thompson, who was also from New York, and he was afraid that he wouldn't be able to rent the house out until he discovered the mystery as to why these people got typhoid fever. Because don't forget, as I said, it was a disease that mainly kind of would have hit the lower class. And these are people who are wealthy enough to rent out summer homes and hire staff. So these were not your typical typhoid patients. He hired a guy called George Soper, who was a civil engineer known for his detailed epidemiological analysis of typhoid fever epidemics to investigate the outbreak. So he was a bit of a bit of a typhoid sleuth. (laughs) So he eventually, after doing his kind of research, he eventually realized that Mary was a possible cause of the outbreak particularly because his research uncovered the fact that seven of the last eight houses that she had worked for had suffered from typhoid outbreaks, which claimed 22 victims to the disease and one death as a result of the disease. So he was convinced that if he could track her down and test her, he would be able to prove that she was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. So basically that although she wasn't suffering the effects of typhoid herself, she was passing it on to other people. This theory of asymptomatic carriers of typhoid was a relatively new theory that was kind of just starting to do the rounds in Europe at the time. But at this point, there was no known cases of asymptomatic typhoid carriers in America. In March 1907, Soper appeared without warning at the Park Avenue townhouse of Mary's current employers. He confronted her with the theory that she was spreading typhoid through her cooking and requested samples of her blood, feces and urine for laboratory examination so that he could prove that. Lovely. Yeah. She did what any normal person would do when they're told that they have something which nobody else has ever heard of before and chased him out of the house with a knife. (laughs) Okay. He wasn't letting go of this. So after several attempts to convince her to submit to testing, He went over her head to the city authorities and she was forcefully apprehended by the police and detained in Willard Parker Hospital, which was New York's receiving unit for those suffering from contagious diseases. And when she was there, she was tested against her will. Now, when I say test against her will, like my understanding of the tests that she was given while she was there 
are that it was kind of like stool tests and urine tests that it wasn't like she was like you know pinned down and, and, and tortured yeah but she was held against her will and tested against her will can i ask with that you get typhoid typhoid from feces or something on your hands and then transferred food if she was asymptomatic does that mean that she had it and was just passing it on in general like the people that she was passing it on to wouldn't have to have contact with how she got it they just have to have contact with her so essentially it's spread it's lack of hygiene so if she's not washing her hands properly or and this is where the ice cream thing is quite important because if you cook food if you heat food to a certain temperature that automatically kills the bacteria but you don't cook ice cream so it wasn't heating the food and killing the bacteria so she was spreading it by virtue of serving people this ice cream with just like and and like when it, I say bad hygiene, like you know yourself with everything going on with the coronavirus at the moment with your 30 seconds of hand washing and you have to sing happy birthday twice and, you know, uh, hot water and soap and all that kind of stuff. I've read somewhere else actually that hot water, do not quote me on this, but hot water isn't actually hot enough to kill the typhoid bacteria. So, like, yes, it was poor hygiene practices, but that doesn't even necessarily mean that she was, like, literally, like, scratching her ass and then, like, sticking it straight into the, straight into the ice cream and being like, mmm, chocolatey one this time. Oh, God. I'm scared. What a, what a delightful image, Maria. Thank you. <laughs> well, basically, it, it's, it's traces. It's not that, like, you have to ingest a whole lot of it. Yeah. So that's how it was spread. She was brought to Willard Parker and when she was tested there, it proved that she did have traces of typhoid bacteria in her system. So she was removed to the Riverside Isolation Hospital on North Brother Island in the East River, where she was treated ineffectually for her condition with various drug therapies. And she lived alone in a one room cottage on the grounds for approximately three years. Wow. So No Brother Island was built in the late 19th century to house victims of smallpox and was eventually given the task of keeping in isolation anyone suffering from a quarantinable disease. Don't forget, obviously, this is before antibiotics. So there wasn't a whole lot of ways to treat a lot of these infectious diseases. It is like there's there's a lot of parallels between what's going on at the moment, actually, and, and what happened to Typhoid Mary. But apparently this island was like not a nice place to be. It was grim, it was underfunded, there wasn't enough staff, you know, it just wasn't a nice place to spend all of your time. Not a little retreat, like. And that's it. And and don't forget that like, Mary hasn't done anything wrong. She's just sick, but she's not even showing the symptoms. And she doesn't believe that she's sick. Because these people keep on telling her that she has typhoid, but like she's got none of the ill effects of typhoid. And this whole idea of somebody being asymptomatic is just non-existent. 
So while she was on North Brother Island, she was subjected to a large number of tests because America had never seen a case like this before. So they're all trying to figure out what's going on as well. The laboratory analysis revealed that Malone was an intermittent carrier of typhoid fever. So that means that she didn't constantly have typhoid fever in her system. Repeatedly over this time, her feces contained no typhoid bacilli at all. The laboratory reports were negative for 12 consecutive examinations from the 16th of September through the 14th of October in 1907. In an on-again, off-again pattern over the 28 months, 119 of the 162 cultures tested positive and 43 tested negative. So her urine consistently tested negative. And while the city was conducting its own laboratory tests, she herself organised for her urine and feces to be analysed by a private company called the Ferguson Laboratories. And this guy called George Ferguson conducted 10 tests on Malone's urine and feces between the 1st of August 1908 and the 30th of April 1909, concluding, I would state that none of the specimens submitted by you of urine and feces have shown typhoid colonies. So. She didn't have it all the time, and her personal guy told her that she didn't have it at all. So now she's being held against her will for a disease that she doesn't really believe exists. And even if it does exist, the government's tests are only showing that she has it some of the time, and her own tests are showing that she doesn't have it at all. So, yeah, she was pretty fed up. Yeah, I'd imagine. It's like she must have felt imprisoned for no reason. Exactly. And that's actually part of the thing that's so fascinating about this whole Typhoid Mary case is it really did start to kick off this conversation about interring people for for public health, which became a huge, huge conversation throughout the 20th century. And is one again now. Look at everything that's happening in America where these people are saying, like, you know, you, you, you can't lock us up. So, yeah, she got pretty fed up. She'd been quarantined for two years, despite the fact that as far as she was concerned, she'd done nothing wrong. Unfortunately, the Greater New York Charter gave state health authorities the power to order the sick into isolation. So they did have a legal basis on it. Health officials were willing to release her, but only on the condition that she had her gallbladder removed. What? Yeah, so they thought that that's where the infection was festering. So that if they got rid of the gallbladder, then she would no longer be an asymptomatic carrier. So I contacted my friend who's a doctor when I read about this to just figure out like how serious an operation getting the gallbladder removed is. Nowadays, it's not that big a deal. Nowadays, it's equal in severity, maybe to getting your appendix out, maybe a little bit more severe, but it's like pretty common, doesn't take very long, not so invasive. Back in those days, it's a different kettle of fish. High likelihood of infection, you're going to have to crack your ribs open. Like just, you know, not something that you want to go through unless you really have to go through it. And again, to emphasize, she didn't think there was anything wrong with her. Yeah. So she obviously didn't agree to go through with the operation, which actually was probably the right call. Because in 1921, the Department of Health followed five carriers who agreed to the removal of their gallbladders, and it didn't work in any of those cases. They still carried the typhoid. 
weird science. Isn't medical history fun? We release you, but only if you give us your gallbladder. I know. Oh man, I just love reading about the weird stuff that like they used to do in the name of science. Like, don't get me wrong, have absolutely no wish to ever be one of the people who had the weird shit done to them. But reading about it is fascinating. So not wanting to have her organs removed. Naturally. She decided to sue for her freedom. Okay. So the story was picked up by newspaper magnate Rudolf Hurst, where it promptly caught the public's attention. So the media storm surrounding her allowed her to pay her legal fees. And some people reckon that the fees might have actually been paid by Hurst himself because he was known to pay for legal fees for people sometimes if the court case was going to result in an interesting story that would sell a lot of newspapers. Clever. Yeah. Don't know how ethical it is, but sure. (laughs) No, but clever nonetheless. (laughs) So this turned out to be a little bit of a double-edged sword for Mary. Because on the one hand, there was a lot of people who were like outraged at the fact that she was being confined against her will. I read some articles in... um, like medical journals from the time of like doctors writing in saying that it's really not cool that she did nothing wrong which is interesting but the flip side is that this is when the name typhoid mary got coined and with with the creation of the name typhoid mary also became the creation of the monster that was typhoid mary so she stopped being a human and started being this caricature tabloid like Exactly, and I'll go into it a little bit more later, but like, she was an Irish immigrant, she was a servant, she was a woman, you know, she was a good scapegoat for a lot of different attitudes that would have been around at the time. And they all became characterised in this name of Typhoid Mary. Unfortunately for Mary, she lost the case, so they were not forced to release her. But her luck was on the turn. Possibly as a result of the media storm, she was released in 1910 on the condition that she improves her hygiene standards and never worked as a cook again. And that's where the story of Typhoid Mary should end. (laughs) And there you go. She lived happily ever after, even without her gallbladder. No, she still had her gallbladder. Oh, yes. They tried to take it from her, but she said no. Okay, gallbladder intact. Good to know. They didn't ever train her in any other occupation. So they got this working class woman who'd been locked up for the past three years, told her they'd release her, but she wasn't able to do the one thing that she was trained to do. So she got a job as a laundress, which was less money, harder work, and there was no prestige. Unsurprisingly, she was not happy with this change in lifestyle, particularly because she hadn't actually done anything wrong. So at some stage between 1912 and 1915, she changed her name to Mary Brown and became a cook. Oh God, she could have chosen a better name. Actually, yeah, with all of our talk about chocolate ice cream and stuff. Yeah, we've talked about feces a lot and now the name Brown is just... It's just adding to that fire. In March 1915, she was discovered working under this alias. 
as a cook at the Sloan Maternity Hospital, which was the location of a recent outbreak of 25 typhoid cases among staff, including two deaths. Apparently, when all this typhoid stuff started to break out, some of her colleagues started joking about the fact that the chef was called Mary and there was all these typhoid outbreaks. So they started calling her Typhoid Mary without actually realising how right they were. I was thinking that, I was like, why didn't she change her first name? Because that's like a dead giveaway. Yeah, but if you're going to give a fake name, if I just went around and said my name was Laura and people called Laura, like I wouldn't turn around and then people would know it was a fake name. That's true. That's a good point. I've learned that from TV. (laughs) So this didn't go down well publicly that she had gone back to work as a cook, particularly a cook in a maternity hospital. And I think a book that I read years ago about her said that like it was a maternity hospital that dealed with quite sickly newborn infants as well. Plus, though, you're not going to give ice cream to infants. So, you know. But like it's it's not something that went down particularly well with the public. The newspapers ran riot and everybody was calling for Typhoid Mary's blood. Sorry, I said I wasn't going to call her that. Everyone was calling for Mary Malone's blood. That was a mistake. I apologise, Mary. She was reapprehended by the authorities and she was returned to Riverside for the remaining 23 years of her life. Oh my God. Yeah. So living alone in her cottage, she was allowed free circulation throughout the grounds and contact with other residents and staff. And from 1918, she was employed by the hospital, first as a domestic helper, then as general assistant in the bacteriology lab and was granted day trips off the island eventually. So a lot of the commentators that I've read kind of speak about the relevance that when they could have helped her and trained her in a new role, they ne- nobody ever did. And it wasn't until she was like combined for several years that they started to kind of train her up in other skills. By then the damage was done. So she suffered a stroke in December 1932, which left her paralyzed and bedridden until her death in November 1938, when she was 69 years old. Jesus, and we think we have a bed. I know, but here's where it starts to get kind of interesting. I feel really, really sorry for her. I feel so sorry for her because she's the only one who this happened to. And she wasn't the only asymptomatic carrier. So there's a guy called Frederick Morsch, who was a German-born immigrant working as a confectioner. He infected more people with typhoid fever than Mary Malone did. And he was also confined on North Brother Island in 1915. But as a father and skilled worker, he was viewed more favourably by the staff. And after a brief detention, he was allowed to live at home where the state even arranged for his rent to be paid. By the time that uh, Mary died, the health department listed 394 healthy typhoid fever carriers in New York City. And Mary was the only one who was in isolation. That's crazy. Yeah. So there's a lot of theories as to why this was the case. 
And I mentioned some of them already. You've got that she was Irish and you've got that she was the lower class. And this whole idea of this whole idea of kind of like the, the lower class being able to like poison and sicken the, the richer people just by their day to day lives and give them a poor disease that terrified people that did not go down well at all. So you've got like this class thing. But gender would have been a very large element of this. And she was not she wasn't a soft and genteel woman you know she chased a guy out of her house with a knife she adamantly refused to believe until she died that there was anything wrong with her she brought the court case like she wasn't timid there's a quote here from health officer s josephine baker who was the physician who first brought malone to the hospital in 1907 who describes mary as a destroying angel whose own bad behaviour inevitably led to her doom. She never learned to listen to reason. She was constitutionally incapable of believing all this mystery about germs. The only answer Baker concluded was to keep her in the custody of the department, out of contact with other people's food. Mary Malone's perversity, as Soper labelled it, indeed caused such frustration amongst those trying to work with her that it became an important factor in her continuing incarceration even though by the time of her second apprehension, her mood showed resignation and defeat more than feistiness and resistance. And officials also used her seeming rejection of gender norms by describing the determined set of her jaw, her masculine mind, and different ways to justify their treatment of her. That's the story of Typhoid Mary. Mary. I think... It's the story of Mary and of Typhoid Mary. I think it's important in this instance to call her Typhoid Mary to just reiterate that, like, yeah, there was this woman who was a cook, probably shouldn't have been one again, was one again, people died as a result of it. But that it's this whole larger socioeconomic, cultural, gender divide that ended up with a woman spending a large, large segment of her life incarcerated for arguably not committing a crime it's so crazy that in that you know just throughout history there's just so many stories where women have just been locked up or kept against their will whether it be in a mental hospital for hysteria with out any grounded facts but that they have a kind of masculine mind i say in inverted commas as they stated there or for this when there was like the people just walking around or in their house and they weren't locked up that they felt it just to keep this woman there for that long is just insane yeah it's nuts and I just feel really sorry for her and she never married she had a live-in lover when she was I think first incarcerated but they reckon he died sometime in the period that she was Mary Brown slash the laundress so she had no family or friends really to fight her corner when she was incarcerated for all of this time either. I wonder if she was married, would she not have been locked up? It's an interesting question. Who knows if she had people advocating for her, possibly or if she was viewed as a more worthy member of society. I feel very bad for saying earlier that the name Typhoid Mary is hilarious now that I know the true underlying story. I take that back. <laughs> oh, don't get me wrong. I'll continue to use the phrase typhoid Mary. 
but I do think that it's important for people to know her real story definitely and it's really relevant talking about this now because there is such a big backlash against quarantining and stuff to certain members of the society you know oh but like do you know what I found really interesting when I was researching this actually I fell down a bit of a public health the history of public health rabbit hole and I found like these documents from the beginning of the 20th century where like kind of as it progressed as like medication different things progressed that they were starting to talk about how like quarantine was like a very old-fashioned way of dealing with diseases and that it's not something that they'd need to deal with kind of as time progressed and then the Spanish flu came along and then they had to do it and then time progressed again and everything was fine and then like 100 years later here we are back in the same spot all over again back in quarantine and it, it is a shame though that like people like it's crazy that some people are just defying it and just think they're like that they don't need to adhere to the guidelines of the time but here's the thing neither did mary malone yeah I don't know, though, if I was told that I had to, like, stay somewhere for six months because I was contagious or whatever, I'd be like, okay. If they were like, you had to stay there for 23 years, then I'd probably kick up a bit of a fuss, all right, you know. I think that it's it's just so difficult when there's new diseases coming out or there's new things being learned about new diseases that, like, how can you convince somebody that what you're doing is for the greater good if you don't have the full information yourself? And I think that's a, a large moral in the story of Mary Malone. And also if they had just actually taught her about hygiene properly and had just trained her up in a different job. But the legacy that she's apparently been given is, now this is contested by different historians that I've read, but the overall legacy is that the health authorities realized that this wasn't a way that you could treat everybody who who was an asymptomatic carrier of a disease so they had to come up with ways to to work differently with it and anthony bourdain wrote a book about her wow if you're gonna have somebody cool write a book about you why not anthony bourdain that's random <laughs> no he is the chef yeah that is very random well i suppose she was a chef yeah okay so do you have any additional notes on on Mary Malone and her woes in life. Alas, I do not have any additional notes. I like what you did there. <laughs> um, no, that's everything. So yeah, thanks everybody for listening this week. And as per you, if you want to like us on Facebook, like us on Instagram, review us, share us with all your friends, give us suggestions of people, just overall engage with us. We're lonely. We're lonely and we know you've nothing better to do. <laughs> <laughs> so you've no excuse. Then yeah, just tune in next week to learn about somebody new who we've yet to decide, but we've a week, so it's grand. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Bye.